So last week, we studied about Jesus' instructions for how to pray. Very simple instructions. He said, don't try to put on a show to impress people when you pray, and don't babble babble on and on over and over again like heathens. He said, instead, just go away by yourself, close the door behind you, and pray to your Father in private. In today's message, we're going to continue that study about prayer. We're going to study the example Jesus gave as an appropriate prayer. The example Jesus gave is what we call the Lord's Prayer. We say this prayer together almost every week in worship. And now I want you to know that Jesus wasn't saying that this is the only prayer you can pray. Rather, what Jesus is doing is he's saying He's giving us a prayer as an example. It's an example, an illustration, both of the attitude and tone of our prayer and an example of some of the things that we could pray about as we pray. So let's say the prayer again together. I know we've already done it today, but let's say it again. And then I will break the prayer down verse by verse from what is in Scripture. Our Father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, Let's go through the prayer line by line from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 and verses 9 through 15. You'll notice the words of the scripture that I read are going to sound a little different than what you're used to. And that's because I'm reading from the New Living Translation, which is a more modern contemporary version of how we actually talk. And we're used to reciting the prayer in the more traditional uh, ways that people have done it for many hundreds of years. But in Matthew chapter 6 and in verse 9, Jesus said, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. Remember, people who follow Jesus Christ are praying to our Father. God is Jesus' Father and he is your Father too if you follow Christ. A good father cares about his kids. He loves them unconditionally. He sacrifices for them. He provides for their needs and gives them all that they need. Sometimes a good father withholds some things from their children. Not because he's mean or he doesn't care, but precisely because he does care. If a a five-year-old says, Daddy, can I eat 17 candy bars? Then the dad says, No, you can't do that. Because he knows 17 candy bars is going to make him incredibly sick. He knows what his children really need. And he, he also knows what, when, when they want something that won't be good for them. So when we pray, we simply talk to God like he is our father. He is. And that's what Jesus' prayer originally was for. Now, because we use such language, such religious language that's left over from centuries in the past when people said thee and thou and hallowed. It sounds so fancy to us, but it really is not that fancy. God is not just 
any father. God is our heavenly father. That means he's better than our biological father. He doesn't have the character flaws and limitations of your dad. If you had issues with your dad, you can be thankful that God is the father you always wished you had. And even if your earthly father was wonderful and and perfect in every way that you could think of, you can marvel in the knowledge that God is infinitely better than your father on earth when he was at his very best. Isn't that amazing to think? That's who we are praying to. When we recite the traditional prayer, we say, Hallowed be thy name. Sounds all fancy. But hallowed is just a fancy old word we, that we don't use anymore. The closest we have is when we talk about Halloween. It comes from the same root meaning, which is all hallows Eve. Hallowed is the old English word for holy and sacred. But even those words, holy and sacred, we sort of take them for granted in modern times. We don't really consciously think about what they really mean. To be holy and sacred is to be different and special. It is to be set apart from all the other common things. I talked about this before one time in a sermon recently. But take, for example, the altar table that's here in the church. It's the same. It's just a piece of wood with four legs and a flat surface. Not a whole lot different from the kitchen table or the dining room table you have in your home. But you would never fix breakfast and serve it on this table because this table is holy. It's set apart for a special purpose, for worship in this church. And God is holy. He's not like all the other common things around us. There are some resemblances there. But God is holy. He is special. He's unique. He's different. And it's not that, it's not just God's name that is different. When we say, your name is holy, or hallowed be thy name, we're talking about God's reputation. That's what a name is. It is the verbal reputation of who you are. If you tell someone you go to Pleasant Grove, it says something. I go to Pleasant Grove Methodist Church. And you run into somebody out in the community that knows the reputation of our church. That says something. We have a reputation and people know us by it. Why do they know? What do they know about us? What is our reputation? When I'm out in the community and I bump into someone and they say, well, what church do you pastor? I say, I pastor Pleasant Grove Methodist Church. There's a lot of different things they might say. I say, oh, I know that church. That's that church that has trunk or treat every year. Man, y'all got like one of the best trunk or treats. I took my grandkids to that last year and they had so much fun. You could just tell everybody there was having fun and they loved what they were doing. They loved us. Or they might say, oh, Pleasant Grove Methodist Church. That's that church. I know that church. They gave my friend $1,000. My friend doesn't even go to their church. They gave them $1,000 to help them fix their house. I know about that church. What's that, what's that thing? Operation Mercy Drops. Yeah, that's Pleasant Grove. Or they might say, oh, Pleasant Grove. That's that church my friend started going to a few years ago. You know what? He... It's like he's a whole different person. 
He's turned his whole life around since he started going to y'all's church. Oh, Pleasant Grove, that's, that's that place I take my shoeboxes to during Christmas time because they do that Operation Christmas Child. And I do a box every year. And my church doesn't take boxes, so I take them over there to your church. You see what I'm saying? That's a name. It's a reputation. People know who you are. We have a reputation as a church. We have a reputation as people because of what we do. And when we pray to God our Father, we say, hallowed be thy name. Because we know him by his reputation. We know who he is by what he has done. When you pray to God, think of all that he has done that has been recorded in the Bible. Think of all of the miracles. Think of how he, he took the slaves who were enslaved in Egypt and he defeated Pharaoh and he took them out of slavery. And they came up to the Red Sea and they were trapped between the Red Sea and the army of Egypt that was bearing down on them. And there seemed like there was no way to escape. And God told Moses, raise your staff and the waters of the Red Sea parted. And the Israelites walked across on dry ground. That's the reputation of God. And you can think not just about things that are written in the Bible, but you could think about things that have happened in your own life. What has God done for you? How has He changed your life? Or how has He changed the life of somebody that's in your family or that you're friends with? And you've seen what God has done for them. And we say, hallowed be your name. Your, your reputation is holy. I think about what you've done and all that you've done for me and that you've done for my friends, that you've done for people for thousands of years. And I come to you and I pray. One year ago, we were following the North Georgia Conference's rules about this affiliation. We were expecting to be finished with that process by summertime. But then on December 28th, while everyone was on vacation, two days before Bishop Sue Hoppert Johnson was to end her term as our bishop and move to Virginia, two days before that, she paused our disaffiliation. Her pause was effectively an edict denying disaffiliation to 186 churches that were pursuing their legitimate right to withdraw from the United Methodist denomination. We were all at a loss as to what we should do. Thousands. I mean, that was here in this church. We were all at a loss. But thousands of churches, thousands of, of United Methodist people from across our conference in North Georgia, we're at a loss. It caught us all off guard. We didn't expect it. And it seemed as if there was nothing we could do and there was no way out. But we prayed. We prayed. Remember I said, we don't know what to do. But we trust God, we're going to be patient, 
We're going to pray and we're going to see what God does because he's a God who makes a way when there seems to be no way. We pray to our Father who is in heaven, who has a holy name, a holy reputation, and has the power to do anything, and against all odds, yesterday, our church was granted disaffiliation, along with not 186, but 261 churches, because through that process, God worked to wake up people and say, you really need to take advantage of this. And so churches who weren't even considering it one year ago, decided to reconsider. You see, God was at work even when we couldn't see it. When we couldn't see a way, He knew a way. There were four churches that didn't make it out. They were not approved. I told you about one of my friends that attends Griffin First United Methodist Church. She received a letter or an email as soon as she got home from conference that the church's building and assets would now no longer be under the, the direction of the elected officials of the church. They would be under the conferences. And that is a devastating blow for them. But does that mean that that church didn't pray hard enough? Not at all. It means the same God that we pray to and the same God that they pray to had a different plan for that church and the the others that were not granted. Sometimes when we pray, God has a different plan and we don't understand, but God, we have faith in our God. It's hard to pray sometimes to our Father in heaven And have faith that he may not answer our prayers the way we want. But think of what Jesus did. What did Jesus do in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was arrested? The day before he was crucified. He gathered with his disciples in the garden and he prayed. And he prayed fervently and he said to the Lord, what did he say? He said, Lord, if it is at all possible... Take this cup of suffering away from me. You see, he didn't want to have to hang on the cross and suffer and feel the pain and the rejection and the shame. And he prayed, Father, if it is at all possible, let this cup of suffering pass from me. But not my will, but thine be done. And Jesus did die on the If you ever feel upset because your prayers weren't answered, you're in great company. But look what God brought of it. Your salvation came from that unanswered prayer of the Son of God. The salvation of the whole world. And so we pray. Jesus said, pray this. Matthew 6.10 He said, pray, may your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This should be a Christian's number one hope and our number one prayer. It's not about us. It's not about us getting what we want. Ultimately, what we ought to really want 
is for God to come and for His will to be done because our faith says that when we pray for that and if we were to get that, oh, what a wonderful world it would be if God's will was actually done on earth. Yes, we have our own hopes and dreams about what we want our lives to be and how we want things to turn out. But, with, but our faith tells us loud and clear, God's plans are always better than our hopes and dreams. And therefore we must be like the heroes of the Bible who are always willing to turn their backs on everything that they had known and go where God led them. Are you ready to surrender your hopes and dreams and truly ask God our Father, may your will, not mine, be done on earth as it is in heaven? And when you're ready to surrender completely to the will of God, then you are ready to pray about your basic needs. Matthew 6, 11, Jesus said, pray this, give us today the food we need. We have basic needs. We ask God to take care of them. The struggles of daily life and prayer are opportunities for us to practice trusting God. Now, we sinful human beings, we are incredibly prone to think we can take care of ourselves. I mean, do we really need to ask God for bread? We need to ask Him for food. Do we really need God for that? Doesn't He have bigger things to worry about? Why can't we just, you know, (laughs) be adults, be responsible, take care of those basic things? Oh, sure, we realize we need God in certain moments in life, like when we're diagnosed with cancer, or when our church is in jeopardy, or when this big, looming issue is bearing down on us. Oh, yeah, then we know we can go to the Lord. We need to go to the Lord in prayer. When we are scared and when we're at our wit's end, and that's fine. God hears us when we pray those prayers. But it is far better for our spiritual health, if we recognize every day, every moment that we desperately need God. We can't take care of providing for ourselves. We do desperately need God to give us our daily bread. Do you think you can do that on your own? That's a problem. We cannot live life on our own. We can't even tie our shoelaces on our own. And this is the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray to help us to remember that. Our Father in heaven, give us our daily bread. Just like the Israelites who wandered in the desert, who God gave manna from heaven, and God specifically told them, Now you listen, you Israelites. Collect what you need for today. Don't be collecting up extra because it might not be there tomorrow. Collect the manna you need for today. And trust me, I'll put more out there tomorrow. And what did the Israelites do? Same thing we do. <laughs> Same thing we would do. We'd be like, I don't know if that bread, I don't know if that man is going to be there tomorrow. I think I'll stick a little bit back here in the back just in case. And that's what they did. And what happened to it? 
it was crawling with worms the next day because God was telling them, no sir, no ma'am, trust me for today. And then here comes Jesus in this Lord's Prayer and he says, give me my daily bread. Trust me. And Matthew 6, 12. And forgive us our sins as we forgive, as we have forgiven those who sin against us. Isn't it interesting? Don't miss this. Isn't it interesting that right next to Jesus' instructions about praying for daily bread, he gives instructions about praying for forgiveness. It's almost like forgiveness is as important to your health and well-being as the basic necessity of food. Now, if you're getting tired, I was told in Sunday school a couple of weeks ago that people start losing me as I get going through. They hear the beginning, I hear the end, and they kind of take a nap in the middle. So if you're taking a nap right now, this is your wake-up message, okay? Hear this. I'm going to read it. Forgiveness is as important to your health and well-being as is the basic necessity of food. What happens if you don't eat? You die. What happens if you don't forgive? Same thing. This is something our church needs to remember and practice very intentionally during this season. Because we've been through a hard and bitter fight. And the Lord has brought us through it. And we have won the right to disaffiliate and to pursue the future God we believe God has for our church. But we also still feel pain and anxiety from a long fight. There may even be hard feelings between some in our church and some in our community. You know, we we look at other churches and what they did or what they didn't do. And we may have some reservations about it. And we may have some questions and say, why did you do this or why did you not do that? And there may have been comments that have been said over the last year or two. There may even be some hard feelings and bitterness right here in this congregation between some. And we need to forgive one another so we can move on and heal. And we need to pray, Father, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And Matthew 6.13 says, And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. And here is the reminder of who the enemy really is. Who is the enemy? It is the evil one. The enemy is not the bishop or conference leaders who tried to sidetrack churches. The enemy is not the person who told lies about you or hurt your reputation. The enemy is not that person who hurt your feelings or, or held you back. We are engaged in a spiritual battle. You see, the real enemy is not the people or things of this world. They're the faces that we see and we get angry at 
and hold a grudge against. But Ephesians 6.12 says, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. So Jesus' prayer reminds us also not to give in to the temptation to blame your problems on God, thinking He doesn't care. And don't give in to the temptation to blame people on earth who oppress you. It is the evil one. And the forces of darkness in an unseen world who are twisting things up against you. And yes, sometimes they work through people. But it's not the people. It's the evil behind it. Therefore, turn away from the temptation and do not feed the devil's influence in your life. Turn to God in prayer. And then Jesus finishes the prayer with this instruction, this explanation in Matthew 6, 14 and 15. He says, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will will not forgive you. I don't know how Jesus can make it any more plain than that. So just take a moment and silently read those words on the screen again to yourself. Forgiveness is hard. It's not, a, it's not a glib thing, but it is essential. We must forgive. Forgiveness is what God has done for us, and it cost Jesus his life to do it. He died on the cross so we can be forgiven and so we can forgive others. We all need forgiveness And God is gracious to forgive. But we must turn and forgive others too. So when you pray, pray like this. Let's say it together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.